First of all, we'll look at that first, that scripture in Luke and chapter 22. And verse 29 and 30. And now I vest in you, I'm reading in the New English Bible, and now I vest in you the kingship which my father vested in me. You shall eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones as judges of the twelve tribes of Israel. And now I vest in you the kingship which my father vested in me. So we turn to the Old Testament and the first book of Chronicles and chapter 29. One Chronicles chapter 29 from verse 1. And David the king said unto all the assembly, Solomon, my son, whom alone God hath chosen, is yet young and tender, and the work is great. For the palace is not for man, but for the Lord God. Now I have prepared with all my might for the house of my God the gold for the things of gold and the things for the things of uh, and the silver for the things of silver and the brass for the things of brass the iron for the things of iron and wood for the things of wood onyx stones and stones to be set stones for inlaid work and of diverse colors and all manner of precious stones and marble stones in abundance. Moreover, also because I have set my affection on the house of my God, seeing that I have a treasure of mine own of gold and silver, I give it unto the house of my God over and above all that I have prepared for the holy house, even 3,000 talents of gold of the gold of Ophir, and seven thousand talents of refined silver, wherewith to overlay the walls of the houses, of gold for the things of gold, and of silver for the things of silver, and for all manner of work to be made by the hands of craftsmen, who then offereth willingly to consecrate himself this day unto the Lord. Then the princes of the fathers' houses and the princes of the tribes of Israel and the captains of thousands and of hundreds with the rulers over the king's work offered willingly. And they gave for the service of the house of God of gold 5,000 talents and 10,000 darics and of silver 10,000 talents and of brass 18,000 talents and of iron 100,000 talents. And they with whom precious stones were found gave them to the treasure of the house of the Lord under the hand of Jehiel the Gershonite. Then the people rejoiced, for that they offered willingly, because with a perfect heart they offered willingly to the Lord. And David the king also rejoiced with great joy. Wherefore David blessed the Lord above all the, before all the assembly, and David said, Blessed be thou, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, for ever and ever. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. 
for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come of thee, and thou rulest over all, and in thy hand is power and might, and in thy hand it is to make great and to give strength unto all. Now therefore, our God, we thank thee and praise thy glorious name. But who am I, and what is my people, that we should be able to offer so willingly after this sort? For all things come of thee, and of thine own have we given thee. For we are strangers before thee, and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are as a shadow, and there is no abiding. O Lord our God, all this store that we have prepared to build thee a house, for thy holy name cometh of thy hand, and is all thine own. I know also, my God, that thou triest the heart, and hast pleasure in uprightness. As for me, in the uprightness of my heart, I have willingly offered all these things, and now have I seen with joy thy people that are present here offer willingly unto thee. O Lord, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Israel, our fathers, keep this forever in the imagination of the thoughts of the heart of thy people, and prepare their heart unto thee, and give unto Solomon my son a perfect heart to keep thy commandments, thy testimonies, and thy statutes, and to do all these things, and to build the palace for which I have made provision. Now this evening... <clears throat> I want to go on to another phase in God's dealings with his people. <clears throat> we have been talking about this whole matter of reigning with Christ and really the principles of kingship. And it's a little too late now to be able to go over all that introduction. I can only suggest that those of you who have not been with us in the beginning times seek to hear the tape of that Time, But we have been talking about this whole matter of what the Bible calls having dominion and uh, God's real purpose for man to bring us to the place where we can reign, where we can rule, where we can have dominion. And we've been looking at the characteristics of kingship as we find them in the lives of some of the saints in the Old Testament. We saw it in Abraham, in Isaac, in Jacob, in Joseph. And then we have looked at Moses and Joshua. And now tonight I want to look at David and Solomon. This is the third phase in God's dealings with his people. The first phase was with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and uh, Joseph. And in many ways, in those four lives, we see the essential elements in true kingship and overcoming. In uh, Abraham, we saw the need of absolute faith. Everything must be of God. Whatsoever is begotten of God overcometh. 
the world. And this is the victory that hath overcome the world, even our faith. And who is he that hath overcome the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. We see something of that faith in, uh, illustrated and revealed in the life of Abraham. We saw something of life. Romans 5.17, reigning in life through one, even Jesus Christ. What a wonderful phrase that is, reigning in life. Nothing just legal about that, nothing just formal about that. That's absolutely glorious. It's the norm for the child of God to reign in life through one, even Jesus Christ. And we have an overcoming life inside of us. And the key we saw again illustrated in Isaac, who was always digging wells that his father had digged before him. He, he really was a receiver, um, taking what had already been done and passing it on um, to uh, his um, uh, children, to his sons. And really, uh, that is the key to life. We cannot give what we have not received. First, we must learn to be a receiver, and then we must learn to give what we receive. And as we give what we receive, we get more. And as we give the more that we receive, we get more. It is a spiritual law. In Jacob, we saw the whole matter of being transformed by the renewing of our mind and the need of deliverance. My word, there's a real need of deliverance. And some of us spend our whole lives Christianizing uh, an old man that really needs um, to be done away with altogether. And uh, the whole glory of Jacob's story is that the God of grace persists with him till he loves him out of being Jacob the supplanter into Israel the prince with God. And Joseph, of course, sums up almost the other three in his life and is the picture of the overcomer in this sense that before he can come to the throne and before he can become a fruitful branch uh, that runs whose branches run over the wall um, that is not only the people of God get something but the people who are unsaved get something first he must taste the fellowship of Christ's sufferings so those are foundational uh, that's the first phase in God's dealings with his people. And that's why forever afterwards God is called the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. He gives that name to the whole people of God. I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And then we come to a second phase which we dealt with last Sunday morning, which is summed up in the lives of these two great men, Moses and Joshua. And that was all to do with possessing the land. Or if you like it another way, then it's all to do with redemption, uh, being delivered from Egypt in order that we might pass over and enter into our inheritance. Or put it another way, it is all to do with appropriating our resources in Christ. If you want to put it another way, it is all to do with the fullness of God in Christ by the Holy Spirit. And uh, um, it is a most wonderful uh, lesson we learn there in this whole matter of kingship, that God has to be everything and we can be nothing. It's, uh, we've, we've seen it in Abraham, we've seen it in Isaac, we've seen it in Jacob. 
Uh, but now we see it even more clearly in Moses, in the burning bush, thorn bush, dead, dry, uh, ugly, common, and God the flame of fire, and the thorn bush and the flame of fire together. When we learn that lesson, that Christ is everything, that God is the I am in us, then we're ready to go over and possess the land. And it's only what we put the soles of our feet upon that we get. We get nothing more and nothing less than what we put our, the soles of our feet upon. So if we put the soles of our feet down upon the ground around Jericho, we get Jericho. But if we feel that Jerusalem is a Jebusite stronghold and therefore too difficult, we don't get Jerusalem. If we feel there's a valley that's uh, fortified and there are strong iron chariots um, guarding it, we won't go in. God leaves it to the enemy. We don't possess it. What we put our feet upon, we get. Caleb said, give me this mountain, which was Hebron, Hebron. And although Hebron was a very difficult place, God gave it to him because he put his feet down and said, give me this mountain. And so we have the great lesson of Joshua. Now tonight we come to the third phase in which this whole matter of kingship is more clearly defined than in any of the others and we see something of the heart of God's purpose. It's worthy of note that the Spirit of God gives us, firstly, a record of these events in 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings. That is, over four books, which are called, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the four books of the kingdom. Now, in those four books, the two books of Samuel and the two books of Kings, the Holy Spirit has recorded for us um, the whole history of the king, uh, uh, the kings, the throne, and the kingdom. The coming in of the kingdom. He begins with Samuel. And Samuel is one of the great turning points of the Bible. Abraham is a great turning point of the Bible. Moses is a great turning point of the Bible. Samuel is a great turning point of the Bible. And Samuel is really the kingmaker. And he is the one that God uses to bring in the king. First the false king, and then the true king. And then from then on, we've had the whole history of the kings, and we have the division later into Israel and Judah, and the false kingdom. Uh, not the messianic line, not the royal line of David. Now, why I'm just underlining is, is this, that then, having given us the record of the history of the king of the throne and of the kingdom, how it came in, how we got the, the, the king of God's choice, and then God's watching over the throne and the kingdom right the way through, then the Holy Spirit goes right back again. This time he goes right back to Adam and records the whole thing again. Very, very swiftly at first, going from Adam right over all those centuries to um, David. And then, quite exhaustively, from David onwards, the Holy Spirit records the whole thing a second time. Now, why? It is always very, very interesting in the Bible whenever God says something twice. Deuteronomy is the giving of the law the second time. Why did God do it? 
Chronicles is the giving of the history of God's dealings with men all over again. Why? Do you understand? It's always interesting when God says something twice. Now, of course, the answer is that the Lord first speaks about the kingdom and the king, and then about the house of God and of worship. In 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, we have the whole matter of history viewed from the point of view of the kingdom and the throne. And from Chronicles, we have the whole history again told us, only this time from the point of view of the house of God and of worship and the service of the house of God. Now, these two matters are intimately linked together. And that's why we're going to look at them in the life of David and the life of Solomon. Because these two men are the beginning and the end of a matter. And they exemplify and illustrate for us this whole matter of kingship and the house of God. And the link. We have to learn one simple lesson that we have got to reign with Christ now if the house of God is to be built. If we are really going to obey that injunction of the Apostle Paul by the Spirit of God, let all things be done unto building up, we have got to learn to reign. For the one thing the enemy will see is that we do not build one another up. He will make sure that every contribution we make is superficial or spurious, that it's just wood, hay, and stubble, that it has not got the character of Christ in it. He will do everything to fill our times with hot air, everything to fill our times with natural activity and routine, just the things that anyone could do. And that's why it is so important that every one of us who are members of the body of Christ, who are living stones quarried out of the very life of God himself in Christ, that we should learn to reign now. And that's why once we see this matter, God allows to come into our lives all kinds of things that are inexplicable so often, just because we have got to learn to come up. <laughs> Do you understand? God allows us to go down in order that we can learn how to come up. We have to learn the principle that before you can come up, you must go down. The exact opposite of this world's way of looking at things. Everything that goes up comes down. But God's um, law is everything that goes down comes up. If you humble yourself, you will be exalted. If you fall into the ground and die, there will be a harvest. If you are prepared to humble yourself to the death of the cross, God will exalt you to the throne of God. Down, up. Now, this ma matter is not just my idea. You will find it everywhere. I can, uh, I'll give you just one illustration of it. In Matthew and chapter 16, in very, very well-known words, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell 
shall not prevail against it. Unto thee have I given the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now you see, do you, that there is a connection between gates of hell prevailing or not prevailing against the building work of Christ with the keys of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, if you and I do not learn to reign with Christ, to exercise the authority that we have in the name of Jesus Christ, if we do not learn to use the keys of the kingdom of heaven, then the, the, the gates of hell will prevail against the building work of Christ. You see, the whole problem is this. If we take the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, how can we explain church history? We have to say when we look at it with a candid, open-hearted, sincere mind that again and again and again and again the gates of hell have prevailed. Now it is all very well to take that adage that is so common in evangelical circles that it is all invisible. But it seems to me a strange way to get out of it. That if it is all so invisible, we never sense it, we never touch it, we never see it, we, we, we apparently never get involved in it. Things can be hopelessly fragmented down here in awful error and darkness and decline and somehow or other all that wonderful work is, is yet being done in the unseen. I cannot believe it. I am quite sure that the essential work of building the church is invisible. It must, however, have a visible expression. Somewhere, somehow, through some sense, there must be a visible, concrete expression of the work of Christ. Tell, do you mean to tell me that a person who's born again, I am not to see a single evidence of the work of Christ in their lives? That I am to see no fruit? That I am to see, I am just to take it that it's all invisible, that however they live, however they behave, however, the, whatever words they use, they are saved, and they are growing in the Lord. When my eyes see the opposite. No, of course not. You know as well as I do that our Lord said, by their fruits ye shall know them. In other words, we know that to be converted is the work of the Holy Spirit. We know that a new birth is to be born of the Spirit of God. And the wind bloweth where it listeth. You hear the sound, but you don't know where it is coming from, where it is going to. So is the Spirit. We know that. Nevertheless, when a person is born of God, we see a new light in their eyes. We see a cleaning up of that outward person. We begin to see them coming under the discipline of the Spirit of God. We begin to see a, a change taking place in their lives. The loose sin that they could indulge in before, they no longer can indulge in, and so on. We see them growing in the Lord. We see a hunger for prayer. We see a hunger for the things of God. We see a hunger for the Word of God. We see that they begin to testify before others. We begin to see something happening, and we rejoice. We know that it's not just the outward techniques and methods that mean anything, but we know that here is evidence that something essentially eternal and spiritual has taken place in this person's life, and there is an outward expression. So it is with the church. 
How then can we explain this word, which is in many ways ambiguous? It can be translated two ways. Either it can be translated, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That is, when the gates of hell come against the building work of Christ, it shall not prevail. Its power, the power of the gates of hell will be broken. And that work will go on. Or it can be seen the other way. Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not hold out against it. In other words, there are times when the church that Christ is building barges in, as it were, goes right into the very kingdom uh, power of darkness and, and takes out lives in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, how we need it, don't we? We, we know lives that are bound and fettered in sin and darkness, moral, spiritual darkness, and we can preach it until we're blue in the face, but until someone can use the keys of the kingdom of heaven somewhere in the unseen, behind the scenes, as it were, nothing happens. Now, it seems to me so clear that gates in Scripture symbolize um, uh, uh, council. It's where the gate, the, the elders always sat giving judgment. You could go in the old days to the elders sitting in the gates and you could have your uh, problems sorted out by them. They would arbitrate. They would adjudicate. They would give counsel. They would give the ruling of the word of God, the law, upon any matter. They sat in the gates and therefore the gates became a symbol of counsel, of purpose of judgment. Um, you understand? Now, the gates of hell surely just simply mean that. That the powers of darkness have a purpose. They have a counsel. They have a, a design, if you like. They have a plan. And either you and I learn to use together, covered in our Lord, um, our life hid with Christ in God, under his headship, we learn to use the keys of the kingdom of heaven. In your New American Standard Bible, you see this put rather in a somewhat awkward way, but the most literally accurate way that it can be put in English. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. In other words, it's not that we are saying, now then, we've decided this, Lord, fall in step. We've decided that um, this and this and this will take place in Richmond, Lord, and we want you to get behind us. We're using the keys. That kind of... No, no, no. It is that by the Spirit of God, we have sensed the will of God. We have come to know in our spirit together what is the will of God in any given matter, this particular thing we're facing. And we know that it is the will of God that these powers of darkness in this matter should be bound. And that's what it means when it says of the Lord Jesus in that messianic Psalm 110, Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Oh, if we could learn it. We learn this simple lesson of kingship. We learn this lesson of reigning with Christ now. We learn this lesson of overcoming in the lives of David and Solomon. 
Because you see, before ever the house of God could be built, David had to come to the throne. The wrong man on the throne had to be got off the throne and put away. And the right man had to be placed on the throne, drawn to the throne. Do you understand? And it was only when David became king and when he fought all the enemies of God's purpose and defeated them that finally his son, rightly named Solomon, Shlomo, peace, could take the throne with all the enemies of God silenced and then the work of the building could begin. Now I say that has tremendous lessons for us because, dear child of God, overcoming has very, very much to do with the building of the house of God. Isn't it interesting when we read in Revelation and chapter 1, I'd like to give a whole evening, by the way, to this matter, but I don't suppose we'll ever get to it. Not the way we're going. Revelation chapter 1, verse 12 and 13 it says, and I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like unto a son of man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about at the breasts with a golden girdle. Uh, verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven, are seven churches. Now, I find that very interesting. This lampstand is not, as I saw recently in some unfortunate tract, which had um, um, an old oil lamp <laughs> on one side and a few other things on the other um, that evidently were all to do with the book of Revelation, so they thought. But this lampstand is the seven-branched lampstand, the menorah of the Old Testament, of the tabernacle. It is the lampstand, the seven-branched lampstand, which has always been a symbol of divine light. And much more than divine light, it has been a symbol of the testimony of Jesus. When we come to the New Testament, that lampstand is a testimony, uh, is a symbol of the testimony of uh, Jesus. Now, if you look back to Zechariah and uh, chapter 4, you find the same thing again. Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 2, And the angel said unto me, What seest thou? And I said, I have seen, and behold, a lampstand all of gold with its bowl upon the top of it. Now, I won't say more there. Um, it speaks about its seven lamps thereon and the seven pipes which run to it. And then in verse 5 it says... And the angel that talked with me answered and said unto me, Knowest thou not what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. And then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace unto it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. 
His hands shall also finish it, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you. In other words, this um, lampstand, all of gold, is a symbol of a building program. Now get that clear. It is a symbol of a building program. The testimony of Jesus is that God had in his heart from the very beginning a building program. He wanted to make us human beings living stones to be built together into his own eternal Habitation, a habitation, a home for himself in the spirit, from which his light would shine forth, from which his love would be expressed, from which his life would be manifested. And that home, that bride, that city, that temple of the Lord would become the place from which God would rule the whole universe. It was the most glorious purpose God had for us. That we in union with him should have dominion. Now it is interesting, isn't it, that when we come to the end of the Old Testament, what do we find? We find a lampstand, all of gold. And we hear the words, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. When we come to the end of the New Testament, what do we find? We find seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of them the risen Son of God. And he is speaking to each he says these lamp lampstands represent a building program. Seven local churches, seven churches selected to represent the whole church of God in time and on earth. And what does the Lord say to each one? To him that overcomes. To him that overcomes. To him that overcomes. And then he says, he that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. In other words, when we come to this whole matter of overcoming, it has a tremendous amount to do with the building of the house of God. Now people immediately always rush up to me afterwards and say, well, well, what about those poor saints who are scattered out in rural areas who have absolutely no... My dear friend, why don't you leave them to God? It's like people who always rush up to us and say, what about the unsaved who've never heard? If you're so concerned about the unsaved who've never heard, don't you think God is? You think God's just going to judge them just like that? You think God is less righteous than you? It's amazing, you know. We take the whole matter of judgment out of the hands of God. We really trust him wholly on this matter. It might be a bit severe. When it comes to it, God will be neither sentimental nor severe. He will be true. And you see, really, when, we, when it comes to it, the fact of the matter is, all through the ages, there have been people who have obeyed the light that God has given them. And in that sense, they're overcomers. All that is required of you is to obey implicitly, explicitly, all that God has shown to you. Never to deny it, never to contradict it, and never to compromise on it. But you and I are not in this case. So let us leave the dear ones out in the rural areas for a moment 
and scattered in the parts of the earth where they have no fellowship. And let's think for a few moments of those of us who have every opportunity of fellowship. Our, my point is this, that overcoming is not just a matter to do with your personal life. It is perfectly true that our Lord says to him that overcometh, not to those that overcome, to him that overcometh. In that sense, it is a personal matter. But it has very much to do with your relationship to other people of God. You cannot withdraw and live like a hermit. You cannot somehow or other just say, well, as long as I go on with the Lord personally, that's all that matters. No, it has much to do with this matter of the building of the house of God. So we see in the lives of David and Solomon the beginning and the end of a matter. In David, we have the preparation for the building of the house and vital principles are illustrated in his life. And in Solomon, we have the realization of that purpose to build a house, the building of it. Now, let's just take a look at the life of David. Now, of course, we're going to, we're going to have to have a bird's eye view um, this evening, a real bird's eye view, and it won't be one of those big, heavy birds either. Um, it's, going to be, it's going to be one of those rather faster-type birds uh, tonight. But we're going to have a birth-eye view of the life of David. 1 Kings chapter 13. 1 Kings chapter 13 verse 14. No, that, that, I'm sorry, that's wrong. I mean 1 Samuel, I'm so sorry. 1 Samuel 13, verse 14. These are the words of um, Samuel. But now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart, and the Lord hath appointed him to be prince over his people, because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. And then in Acts and chapter 13 and verse 22, Acts 13 and verse 22, And when he had removed him, that is Saul, he raised up David to be their king, to whom also he bare witness and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who shall do all my will. All my a man after my own heart, who shall do all my will. To be king, a man after my own heart, who shall do all my will. Or in the words of Samuel, a man after God's own heart, appointed to be prince over his people. You see, this matter of kingship is very much connected with being a person after God's own heart. I wonder what that means. After God's own heart. 
I can't help feeling that it has something to do with those words of our Lord, of the, uh, those words of the Father concerning our Lord when he went into the waters of Jordan to be baptized. And the heavens opened, and the voice of God was heard saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Great David's greater son. What God was saying was really this, like father, like son. Like father, like son. He is displaying the same heart quality and attitude as my own. We gave him no help. Those waters of baptism were not that he might wash away sins. He had no sins to wash away. Not that he might go through an empty ritual. God doesn't believe just in that. That those waters of baptism for Jesus represented Calvary three years before he came to it. They represented the death of the cross. And it was as if God was saying, now will you or won't you? You don't have to. Will you? Or will you not? And Jesus stepped down into those waters and committed himself lock, stock, and barrel to the death of the cross. And when that happened, the heavens opened, the Spirit of God came down and anointed him, and the voice of God said, like father, like son. It's interesting that again it happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. And Jesus turned away from his glory and went down to face the epileptic, demon-possessed boy. It was only just a few weeks from his cross could have stepped into glory at that point but he turned away then God said this is my son hear ye him it's a matter of character a man after God's own heart now Saul as you know those of you who want to follow it I can give you the scriptures you'll find them in 1 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 2 was head and shoulders above all the people and was goodly to look at and strong it was, he was everything that anyone would have ever thought should be a king. He had the bearing. He had the physique. He had the looks. He had the strength. He had the personality, evidently. He had everything. But isn't it amazing when you compare that with 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 6 and 7 and 13 where the Lord said to Samuel when he saw the first of Jesse's sons and said, this must be he. And the Lord said, don't look at the appearance. Look on the heart. For the Lord, it says, looks upon the heart. And you know, dear Samuel sort of received a, a, a check in his spirit. And he looked at the first uh, of, of Jesse's seven sons and said, no, no, no. And the second, no. And the third, no. And the fourth, no. And the fifth, no. Cheer up, those of you who are younger sons. Down to the last one. I wonder if he wasn't even there. They hadn't bothered to bring him in. Jewish tradition tells us, of course, that David was very much younger than his youngest brother. And so they hadn't even bothered him. That young kid, cheeky and precocious, out learning a few good lessons of humility <laughs> with the sheep. And then Samuel said, isn't there another? And uh, Jesse said, well, yes, there is another. 
You don't want to see him, do you? He's out with the sheep. Yes, I want to see him. As soon as he saw him, he said yes. Now, the interesting thing is that, that David, it says, was of a ruddy complexion and of a good countenance and withal beautiful. I think I'm right in quoting it. Um, which means that he was quite nice to look at. Don't get any mistake. But you see, you see, he was too young. That was the point. He, he just, he, apparently he wasn't God's man. A man after God's own heart. That's one of the big lessons you and I have to learn, you know. David must have had some tough times out there with the sheep. Youngest of all those, mind you, some youngest uh, children are pretty resilient. Um, they sort of make up somehow or other the fact that they are the youngest. Whether they get spoilt, I don't know, but it's quite wrong to think that the youngest are not the most characterful and won't go the farthest. Because John Wesley was the 22nd. <laughs> and Charles Wesley was the 23rd. So we have examples in Scripture of the firstborn being everything, and we also have sometimes examples of the lastborn being everything. One feels a bit sorry for those in between, but never mind, we'll, <laughs> we'll forget that. We have got examples even of some of them. Um, the fact of the matter is that, that David was the youngest, and he outwardly did not appear to be the man of God's choice. Now, the interesting thing is this. We know from what we've been told of David's life that he had a number of experiences, and those ex in those experiences he proved the Lord. That's how you become a man or a woman after God's own heart. It's not in the great open public arena. It's so often in your routine job or in your home or in your relationship with parents or with others that somehow or other you're put to the test and it's there that your heart, your heart attitude is revealed. A man after God's own heart. Now the second thing about uh, uh, David in this matter of being preparation for the building of God's house is he had a clear-sighted understanding of the purpose of God. Would to God that every Christian had as clear an understanding of God's purpose as, as David did. His reigning, his throne and kingdom were not something in his mind in itself, but they were a responsibility to discharge a responsibility to fulfill God's purpose. Now, if you look at 1 Chronicles and chapter 17, 1 Chronicles and chapter 17, verse 1 to 4, we read this, And it came to pass when David dwelt in his house that David said to Nathan the prophet, Lo, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord dwelleth under curtains. And Nathan said unto David, Do all that is in thy heart, for God is with thee. And it came to pass the same night that the word of God came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell David my servant, Thus saith the Lord, Thou shalt not build me a house to dwell in. And then, if you look at um, uh, chapter 12 to 14, 
Solomon shall build me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son, and I will not take my loving kindness away from him, as I took it not from him that was before thee. But I will set in, settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. Now, it is interesting that David speaks in this way quite a long way on in his reign. In other words, this is toward the latter part of his reign, when he says that um, the ark of the covenant of the Lord dwelleth under curtains. Now that is all the more interesting when you read some of David's psalms. At least 70 of the psalms are attributed to David in the book of the psalms. And many of them undoubtedly are uh, David's uh, work. Now, just look at just a few of them. Take, for instance, the well, the best known of all David's psalms, Psalm 23 and verse 6. Now, rabbinic tradition tells us that this little psalm of David was written when he was a boy. It was one of his earliest psalms. And this is what he said when he was a boy. If it's true, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Wherever had he got such an idea from? There was no real house of the Lord. <laughs> Isn't it interesting? And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Again, it is another old um, uh, Jewish tradition that Jesse was a weaver of the tabernacle uh, veil. And that maybe it was in his childhood that David had heard his father saying, it's about time we had something more permanent uh, for the Lord uh, than this tabernacle, which was meant for our wilderness journey, our wandering through the wilderness. I don't know. But the interesting thing is this, that you get this again and again. I will only give you a few. Um, uh, for instance, Psalm 26, verse 8. The Lord, Lord, I love the habitation of thy house and the place where thy glory dwelleth. I say that's clear-sighted understanding of the purpose of God. Again, chapter 65 and ver um, not chapter, Psalm 65, verse 1 to 4. Praise waiteth for thee, O God, in Zion, and unto thee shall the vow be performed. O thou that hearest prayer, unto thee shall all flesh come. Iniquities prevail against me, as for our transgressions thou wilt forgive them. Blessed is the man whom thou choosest, and causest to approach unto thee, that he may dwell in thy court. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, thy holy temple. That's why some liberals insist that such a psalm could not have been written by David. They say he couldn't have possibly spoken about the temple. But the fact is, it bears out something, that this thought was in the heart of this man from childhood, that God should have some house. Do you understand? Again, if you look at Psalm 27, so well known to us all, we sing these lovely verses so often together. 
Verse 4 and 5, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire, where? In his temple. For in the day of trouble he will keep me secretly in his pavilion, in the cupboard of his tabernacle will he hide me, he will lift me up upon a rock, and now shall my head be lifted up above mine enemies. You see, there was some clear understanding. Look at um, Psalm 36, verse 8 and 9. They shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house, and thou shalt make them drink of the rivers of thy pleasure, for with thee is the fountain of life. In thy light shall we see light. What wonderful words. It reveals something. He understands that. Look at Psalm 68. And verse 28 and 29, here is a most remarkable statement by David. Thy God hath commanded thy strength. Strengthen, O God, that which thou hast wrought for us. Because of thy temple at Jerusalem, kings shall bring presents unto thee. I find that remarkable since there was no temple there. There's something in this man's heart. It's a passion. He has a single eye. One thing have I desired, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. It was the passion of his life. And he saw in it far more than some house, some place of bricks and, and mortar, of stone and wood and gold and silver and precious stone. He saw in it as a pattern of the heavenly. He saw in it something which, which expressed and illustrated the desire of God to be found amongst his redeemed people. Look at Psalm 11, verse 4. If you want any more examples, it takes too long, I suppose, to look up all these. But it, they are so amazing. Psalm 11, verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord, his throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids try the children of men. I find that a remarkable statement. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord, his throne is in heaven. And so I find it remarkable. And, and chapter 18, which is the wonderful uh, psalm which he wrote when he was delivered from all his enemies and in particular Saul. And in Psalm 18, verse 6, he says, In my distress I called upon the Lord and cried unto my God. He heard my voice out of his temple. And my cry came before him in his ears. But he had no temple. We know David wrote this before ever the temple was, was built. It is no wonder to me that later on someone wrote the 122nd Psalm. Lord, remember David. Do you remember that wonderful one? Psalm 122. No, sorry, not um, uh, 132. Lord, remember for David all his affliction, how he sware unto the Lord and vowed unto the mighty one of Jacob. Surely I will not come into the tabernacle of my house, nor go up into my bed, nor uh, I will not give sleep to mine eyes or slumber to mine eyelids until I find out a place for the Lord, a tabernacle for the mighty one of Jacob. And then it goes on. You read the whole psalm. That wasn't David's psalm. That was written by others. But it accurately describes the passion of this man's life. Now, I wish to God that all of us had such a clear-sighted understanding of the purpose of God. We, we need it. We need it in these days of confusion and perplexity and division. 
and fragmentation. We need clear-sighted understanding of the purpose of God, what it is he wants to do. <clears throat> David had it. It went right back to his youth. And it went right through to the last days of his life. It was the passion of his life. And the greatest shock perhaps he ever received was when the Lord said to him, You shall not build me a house. But your son, he shall build me a house. And the third thing that we learn about this is that if you've got clear understanding, and the clearer the understanding you have, the greater the trial you will have. For the third thing is that there were years of trial ending in the throne. You know, poor David, he had years of trial. At the beginning, it all was so promising. First, David was harp player to Saul and greatly held in great esteem by the king and by the court. And then he defeated Goliath in the most incredible uh, battle. And you remember the whole of Israel went mad and said, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands. And you remember his family was tax-free from then on, and, uh, which was no small thing. And, um, and, and Michal, or the, the King Saul's other daughter actually to begin with, but he got out of that, um, uh, was offered um, to uh, whoever slew uh, Goliath. It was also promising. David's relationship with Jonathan, the, the, the king's firstborn, heir to the throne, it was also promising. And then the whole thing plunged into adversity. First the hatred and malice of Saul. Then his having to leave Jonathan. And then finally, his whole life being hunted from pillar to post through the wilderness. Oh, you've got the whole story. And you know, the Psalms that come. It was David's trial of faith. And two times, Saul came right into the hand of David and he could have, he could have finished him off and taken the throne. And the promise of God that he should come to the throne through Samuel the prophet would have been fulfilled. Think of the temptation. David's men were absolutely thrilled. The two things, if you want to look at them, are 1 Samuel 24, uh, verses 4 to 6, and 1 Samuel 26, verse 7 to 12, if you wish to look at it. But you see, David's men were so excited, they said, now the time has come for you to take the kingdom. But David, all he could do was cut off the end of Saul's garment while he was in the bathroom. And that is the New English Bible rendering. <laughs> uh, the Living Bible, yes, I'm sorry. While he was American in the bathroom. Yes. The American version. While he was in the bathroom, David cut off his... And then his heart smote him and said, I have done evil towards the Lord's anointed. May the Lord forgive me. I will not touch the Lord's anointed. Later on, Saul was asleep. David could have slain him. He could have woken him if he'd wanted to and still slain him so that he didn't feel that he'd killed a sleeping man. But David wouldn't touch him. All he went up on the high side, took certain things and shouted till Saul woke up and said, see, we could have killed you. Trial. If God's ever going to bring you to the throne, God will allow certain things to come your way that will be a great temptation. Shortcuts. Shortcuts to fulfillment. Shortcuts to rest. 
shortcuts to success, shortcuts to the realization in your eyes of your ministry. They will not bring you to fulfillment. They will bring you to a tragedy. Always. Trial. A man after God's own heart. The trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it is tried, so as by fire, may be found unto praise and glory and honor and the revelation of Jesus Christ. If we're going to come to the throne, we have to suffer. If we endure with him, we shall also reign with him. The inner history of these years is told in a number of psalms. I don't know if any of you have got a pencil and you'd like to take down these psalms. I'll only give you a few. But if you want to go home and read, you will see into the heart of David. You will see a man after God's own heart. Here are some of the psalms written by their title at this time. Psalm 34. Psalm 34. Psalm 52. Psalm 54. Psalm 56. Psalm 57, Psalm 59, Psalm 63, and that most wonderful Psalm, Psalm 18. Read them. Then you will see into the heart of a man that God is disciplining, that God is training, that God is testing, that God is proving. You will see into his heart. You will see how years of trial must end in the throne. Because there is a character in the man that can do nothing else but reign. There is a, a character in that man that must come to the throne. So it all ended first in his being crowned king of Judah in Hebron, in Hebron, and, in, and then later crowned king of all Israel. Um, there's a fourth thing about this preparation work. I will only touch on it very rapidly, and it's what we call Adullam and the mighty men. I remember years ago we used to have a sister who was forever praying about the cave of Abdullah. <laughs> it is not the cave of Abdullah. It is the cave of <laughs> Adullam. <laughs> yes, they've never heard of the cave of Adullam. 1 Samuel 22. 1 Samuel 22, verse 1 and 2. This cave of Adullam was a formative um, place in the lives of all who were with David, who finally came to the kingdom. There, David therefore departed thence and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When, when his brethren and all his father's house heard it, they went down thither to him. And everyone that was in distress and everyone that was in debt and everyone that was discontented gathered themselves unto him and he became captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. Paul and I have been to the cave of Adullam um, in between Bethlehem and, and Engadi in the Dead Sea. And they say that you can get 400 men in that cave with its own spring of water. One of the only large caves in the whole area that has within it a spring of water in which would be safe to take so large a number of men. But think of it. All these people who were in distress, all these people who were pressurized, all these people who were discontented, they gathered together to David in the cave of Adullam. And out of that cave was formed a team that was to take the kingdom. 
And those men became the mighty men of David. You read about them all later on in 1 Samuel 23, from verse 8 to 39. Oh, there were some mighty men. Some slew bears in time of snow. Some defended lentil patches, single-handed. Some, oh, the things they did, those mighty men of David. There were the great three, and then you went down to the 30, and then to the other, and so it went on all the way down. Oh, the, the mighty men of David. But they were formed in times of trouble. It couldn't have been easy for those men. I suppose for us, it must have seemed that it was like a, a sort of pirate's um, uh, holdout um, up there. But it wasn't. You know, dear friends, may we be preserved from discontented people. Some people join companies uh, uh, such as this through sheer discontent. They've collided with other people and they're fed up to the back teeth with them. And so they come somewhere. But of course, you see, you never get away from anything. If you've collided with someone, somebody else, you can mark your words, you'll collide with somebody here in the end. Only it'll be worse. <laughs> you jump out of the frying pan into the fire. Discontent was never a basis. But you know, dear child of God, there is a real discontent. There is a discontent with things that do not match up to what God really wants. Now that is a holy discontent. Why should we put up with things that are unscriptural? Why should we put up with things that are erroneous? Why should we put up with things that are compromised and superficial and worldly? We, 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 to have a holy discontent about that kind of thing is right. And those people gathered together and God formed them into a team. It must have been very difficult for them, living together, hounded together, pressurized together, you know, like some sort of vast spiritual pressure cooker. They couldn't get out of it. Something was being done inside of it. So it is when God ever does anything with us, we have to be beaten into an instrument which God can use. To take the throne. And then here's another point, the fifth point about preparation, and that is fighting the good fight of faith. David was a man of war. 1 Chronicles, um, chapters 18, 19, and 20, uh, list all the great victories of David over the Edomites, over the Ammonites, over the Moabites, over the Arameans, over the... Well, they're all there. All of them listed the Philistines. Everywhere, all the great traditional enemies of God's people are all there, and one after another, he beats them. In those chapters, it reminds me so much of those wonderful words of the Apostle Paul in one of his last letters. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on life eternal to which you are called. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on life. It, it doesn't just come to you willy-nilly. There's a time when, when in this whole matter, you've got to fight the good fight of faith and lay hold on it. There are so many enemies of God, so many enemies of the well-being of God's people, so many of these powers of darkness, these, not flesh and blood, but the things that are behind flesh and blood. 
Oh, that God could help us in this whole matter. I think of this wonderful Psalm 108, this Psalm of David, when he cries, My heart is fixed, O God, I will sing, yea, I will sing praises even with my glory. Awake, psaltery and harp, I myself will awake right early. And then he says, Be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens and thy, and thy glory above all the earth. And then he says, Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim also is the defense of my head, Judah is my scepter, Moab is my washpot, upon Edom will I cast my shoe, over Philistia will I shout, who will bring me into the fortified city, who hath led me unto Edom? What a wonderful thing, able to talk like that. My word, that's victory. And of course there are so many other scriptures that come immediately to mind. In this whole matter of this fight, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against hosts of wicked spirits in heavenly places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, and having done all, stand. Now, it seems to me, you see, that if you and I are going to see the house of God built, we're going to face all the traditional, fierce, violently antagonistic enemies of God's purpose. One after another they will come. They will waylay us one way or the other. But whether from within or without, we shall face enemy after enemy after enemy in this whole matter of building. Not just a matter of the corporate side either. It's personal. Because obviously if the enemy can knock you out, he's knocked out one living stone. And thereby made the contribution that much less rich. You can do it with a whole number. Think of the weight on the whole work when many of us are just knocked out. He comes to us as a company. All the time breathing his lies and his insinuates, these phantom things that, that somehow distance us one from another. And, uh, oh, the rest of you know it all. How hateful the enemy is and how we need to fight this good fight of faith. We'll never see the house of God built or the work of God fulfilled unless we do and I think of those other wonderful words in 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 10 and verse 3 to 5 we rest um, the, for the weapons of our warfare are not um, of the flesh but mighty through God to the pulling down of satanic strongholds bringing every what is it uh, thought well that's the last word of it but uh, um, let me just read it. Casting down satanic songholds. Yes, thank you very much as well. Let's read it. Um, ten. Casting down, casting down imaginations and every high thing that is exalted against the knowledge of God and bringing every thought into captivity to Christ. What a tremendous thing. When, you know, when you read that, that is the whole realm that faces us. Satanic strong points, fortresses, strongholds. Imaginations. I find again and again the thing that somehow lodges in corporate life are imaginations. People imagine things and you cannot get them out. Those imaginations. Those kind of speculative reasonings that people have. All for them to be cast down. High things exalted against the knowledge of God. Not only amongst the people of God. But in a town like Richmond, think of these things that hold people in darkness and bondage. Thoughts. Everything begins with a thought. <sighs> Everything. 
Chairman Mao, Chairman Mao's thoughts. Karl Marx had a thought. It developed into an ideology, and the ideology has fettered half the world. Things that could be brought into captivity to Christ. And then, of course, there is this taking of Jerusalem. That's the sixth thing. You see, David took Jerusalem. And the interesting thing about this, if you read in 2 Samuel 5, 6 to 10, is that really um, they was, the Jebusites were so convinced that no one could take Jerusalem, they actually said, the lame and the blind. He'll have to, he'll have to get the lame and the blind out the way. The mean, meaning that it was impossible to take it. Impossible. And yet, you see, Joshua, the Lord had said to Joshua, every place where the sole of your feet treads upon, that will I give you. When, when the, the men of Joshua's day saw Jerusalem, they said, it's no good. David sent men up through the old li- the, the water shaft. What did they do? They put their feet down on it, didn't they? That's all. They said, David said, we will take it. And they took it. And Jerusalem became Zion, the city of God. And you know, all the way through David's Psalms, you find Zion and Jerusalem. Oh, what a place they hold in his Psalms. Because he saw that this was the place where God had caused his name to dwell. This was the place where the house of the Lord was to be built. And the last thing about this preparation work in David's life is the gathering of the materials for the house of God. They were the spoils of war. Now, I have read in 1 Chronicles 29, 2-5, but if you'll turn back to 1 Chronicles um, 18 and verse um, 7 to 11, we read this very interesting uh, statement. And David took the shields of gold that were on the servants of Hadar Ezer and brought them to Jerusalem and from Tibhat and from Kun, cities of Hadar Ezer. David took very much brass wherewith Solomon made the brazen sea and the pillars and the vessels of brass. And when Tol, king of Hamath, heard that David had smitten all the hosts of Hadar Ezer, king of Zobah, he sent Hadoram, his son, to King David to salute him and to bless him because he had fought against Hadar Ezer and smitten him. For Hadar Ezer had wars with Tol. And he had with him all manner of vessels of gold and silver and brass. These also did King David dedicate unto the Lord with the silver and gold that he carried away from all the nations. From Edom, from Moab, from the children of Ammon, from the Philistines and from Amalek. Now what does this teach us? Very simply, this. The dear child of God, the house of God is built out of what you and I gain of Christ in the fight of faith. Every time we see the enemy beaten, there are spoils of war. And those spoils of war go into the building. How do you grow in grace? Well, you know as well as I do, you and I grow in the Lord. We partake of of the divine nature by the exceeding great and precious promises. But how do we often get forced to stand upon those promises? I wish that it was all lovely and easy. But we're all so lazy, none of us ever stand on a promise until we've got our back up against the wall, till we're at our wit's end, till everything uh, speaks of impossibility. And then we say, Lord, Lord, I have no one to turn to. What shall I do? And the Spirit breathes the promise into us. And we stand on the promise, and God works a victory. 
Now we come through that with something of the Lord, don't we? We come out with spoils of war. And those spoils of war are gold and silver and precious stone. They are the things that go into the building of the house of God. Does anything ever come out of defeat? Now don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that you just go on a quest of victory. You know, the idea of people have got a victory is that the enemy, why you do, you never see him. You know, you just don't see him, he's just gone. Thank God for the times when the devil removes the enemy so that when we go out, he's gone. There are times. But generally speaking, we know the enemy very near. We wrestle not against flesh, but against principalities. Wrestling. Wrestling is a very indecent, impolite sport. To have a a 16-stone man sitting on top of you is not exactly the most decent thing in the world. To have him twisting your arm up your back up your back and nearly tearing it off or tearing your leg off or thumping you against some corner is not I mean wrestling is really it's not a tennis match (laughs) but most people say we are playing a championship a tennis championship match against the powers of darkness against principalities against powers you know the kind of thing we are pitting our skill against them it's all very decent very nice very Wimbledon Nice. Wrestling, somehow or other, is very Streatham. <laughs> you know, it's sort of right down to earth, right down at the bottom. You know, we're going to really come now, we're going to get you. Now, my point is this that when there are times when the enemy will sit on us, it doesn't mean that we've lost. It's a wrestling. There are times when the enemy will pin us to the ground when we'll have all his weight on top of us, when we'll hardly be able to breathe, when we shall feel as if we're being uh, some, some form of, of spiritual claustrophobia. But by the grace of God, and in the name of the Lord our God, we can get up and win. And we can win again and again. This idea of victory isn't something that's all just beautiful. Sometimes we're under, but thank God we end up on top. And that's victory. It's not that you never see the enemy. You never smell um, the smell of war. But rather that in the midst of it, when you're down, you come up on top. And if the enemy pushes you down, the more down you go, the more up you go. And that is the spoil. And every time you know the victory of the Lord, in such certainty, you have spoils, and those spoils go into the house of the Lord. Now our time's gone. What about Solomon? Well, just to say this about Solomon, and I covet and you all just have to look up the scriptures yourself. We have the building of the house of God in this way. He's a man of rest. In 1 Chronicles 22 and verse 9, he's actually called, your son is a man of rest. His name, Solomon, means peace. It's the other side of the coin. No building of God's house till all the enemies are defeated. Have you got that? We cannot build the house of the Lord till we've taken ascendancy above the enemies of God, for they will effectively paralyze the work. Oh, don't we know it? Don't we even know it on this physical work that's going on in these premises? And what a need of wisdom there is in building. 
Isn't it a beautiful thing that when God appeared to, so to Solomon when he was 21 years of age, think of it, 21 years of age, God appeared to him in the night and said, My son, ask of me and I will give you. Of course, the Lord was testing him again, proving him again. And Solomon, I think, answered in the most beautiful way, one of the most beautiful ways we have in the Word of God. You find it in 2 Chronicles, chapter 1, and verse 7 to 11. We'll just read verse 9. Now, O Lord God, let thy promise unto David my father be established, for thou hast made me king over a people like the dust of the earth in multitude. Give me now wisdom and knowledge, that I may go out and come in before this people, for who can judge this thy people that is so great? And the God said to Solomon, Because this was in thy heart, and thou hast not asked riches, or wealth, or honor, nor the life of them that hate thee, neither yet hast asked for long life, but hast asked wisdom and knowledge for thyself, that thou mayst judge my people, over whom I have made thee king. Wisdom and knowledge is granted unto thee, and I will give thee riches and wealth and honor, such as none of the kings have had that have been before thee, neither shall there any after thee have the like. I think that's wonderful. I don't believe we put enough on wisdom. There is no greater need in the building of God's house than wisdom. You see, you can have the knowledge, but what use? God knows how much knowledge there is. Would that there were more. But God knows how much knowledge there is about the doctrine of the church. The technique. My goodness me. People have studied the normal Christian church life till they can almost quote it backwards, forwards, and almost upside down. They've got the technique. They've got the science. They've got the fact. It's true. Wisdom is how. And that is the problem. How? You can know what the church is, but how to build it? How to see it function? How to see it produced by the Spirit of God? How to see it nurtured? How to see it grow up into Christ as head? Oh, there's so much in this matter of wisdom. I just leave it with you. And another thing about the builder himself is not only a heart of wisdom, but you see, there's... We have, we've got to ask ourselves, what am I contributing? What am I contributing? You see, Solomon had all this wealth that David, his father, had won from battle. Oh, what wealth he had. Stones of marble, other kinds of stones, precious stones, stones for inlaid work, iron for the things of iron, Brass for the things of brass, silver for the things of silver, gold for the things of gold, wood in abundance. It was all there. I have to ask myself, when I read 1 Corinthians chapter 3, most of us understand 1 Corinthians chapter 3 as um, 
our, our own lives, don't we? Don't we? We all understand 1 Corinthians chapter 3 as our own lives. Is my life wood, hay and stubble, or is it um, gold or silver or precious stone? But that's not how Paul uses it. He is speaking of himself as a master builder. 1 Corinthians 3, from verse 10 onwards to 15. And he says, if I build with wood, hay and stubble, or gold, or precious stone, or silver, every man's work will be tried. Every man's work will be tried. <laughs> that means everything I have done here or elsewhere will one day be put to the acid test and it will be clear as to whether my building has been with gold, precious stone and silver or with wood, hay and stubble. The fire will try my ministry. What are you contributing? What kind of builder are you? The apostle says, let everything be done to building up. What is it you contribute? Perhaps you don't contribute anything. Don't think you will escape. For if you bury your talent, it will be taken away from you and given to another. That's what kingship is all about. We're not talking about your salvation. We're talking about reigning. And if you have buried what the Lord gave you to contribute and to trade, to exploit in his name, to increase, if you have buried it, it will be taken away. You will be saved to us by fire. But what was given to you will be taken away and given to someone else who has known the discipline of God in building. That's why it says again and again, to him that hath shall be given. And to him that hath not shall be taken away even what he hath. He shall be saved to us by fire, but the possibility of reigning, of dominion, having it taken. Then listen to those words. Reigning with Christ, overcoming, has very much to do with all this for it is to do with eternal material for an eternal city. It's very easy just somehow or other to have a ministry that is just a matter of words and truth. Anyone with reasonable intelligence can string together some truths and some things like that. But it's much more when God starts to do a work in you so that there is an anointing, so that there is a character, and there is a capacity, and there is a reality. Not one of us who contributes anything can always say that everything we say is true of us. But as Watchman Nee once said, if we're really being led by God and under the hand of God, then either what we say comes out of what we have learnt, or what we say later we shall learn. But it's true. 
for God has us under his hand of discipline. And then, of course, there is the building itself. What a wonderful thing this building is. You find it all in 2 Chronicles chapter 3. First Mount Moriah, that's the place, the place of the altar, the place of sacrifice. That's where the house has to be built, on the flesh and floor of on the Jebusite. Do you remember it? It's there that the house of God has to be built, right on Calvary. You cannot build the house of God anywhere else. It's not a social club. It's not just a question of learning a few doctrines. It has to be built on an experience of Christ crucified. Not only as our saviour, but as our representative. And then again, you notice it's a foundation that they clear and they level a whole thing of a great massive foundation. And there is only one foundation upon which the house of God can be reared, and that is Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? Much to do with overcoming is staying on the foundation. Oh, sometimes we get pushed off it. We begin to see some ugly things about one another and we feel, I'd rather get off this foundation. We don't see the foundation, we see the stones. We have to stay on the foundation. There's only one foundation. Can't get off of it. We've got to stay, we've got to go through together. And then there are living stones. No point living stones unless they're built together. House isn't a heap of stones. Houses are a number of stones that found their relationship to one another. And then over the stone goes silver. And then over the silver inside, a membrane of silver. And then over the silver goes wood. And then over the wood goes gold. Think of it. All the beauties and glories of Christ. Silver redemption. Wood, the new man. Gold, divine nature. Oh, isn't it wonderful? And finally, into the gold go precious stones, the radiant glories of Christ. It is no wonder to me that in the end the glory of God fills the house. And although Solomon falls away afterwards, with that glory filling the house of God, it's as if the high watermark in God's program has been reached. Glory. And the God of all grace who has called you unto his eternal glory in Christ Jesus after that you have suffered a little while himself perfect, establish, strengthen you. Called to his eternal glory. That's not a personal thing. It's a vessel of glory. It's a house of glory. It's a habitation of glory. It is something to do with union with Christ and union with one another. May God help us in this matter of overcoming. May we go from glory to glory. May we be vessels afore prepared for glory. God do it. And if it means that you've got to learn how to overcome like David, so that you become, can become a builder. These two things go hand in hand, of course, in our experience. May the Lord do that work in your life and in mine to the fulfillment of his purpose. Shall we pray? Dear Lord, we commit ourselves now to thee and we pray, Lord, that thou wilt thyself watch over thy word to perform it 
Thou knowest the areas, Lord, in our lives where we don't understand. Oh, Lord, there's some blind spot. Lord, have mercy and compassion upon us, we pray. And may our eyes be open to see thy purpose in this matter. May we be brought in our own circumstances and situations to that place of reigning with Christ. Where we know something, Lord, of the defeat of thine enemies. And where we know that great purpose of thine to build the house to its completion. Going on, Lord, to fulfillment. Father, we give ourselves to Thee. We don't understand everything, but we do pray that, Lord, in some way, Thou wilt relate all that has been said this evening to each of our lives and to our life as a company of Thy people. And we ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.